ultimately it wasn't a fair fight. It was me and the Bible versus 2,000 years worth of rich reflection on the scriptures, on the tradition, on the way of life that Jesus taught. I, I, I had no chance. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Orthodox Christian Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Father Justin. And for those who are uh, listening or watching, Father Justin, why don't you give us a brief introduction? Tell us what you spend your time doing. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, an Orthodox priest, have been for well, a number of years now. Uh, I founded a small mission here in Vancouver, British Columbia, called St. John of Shanghai Orthodox Mission. Um, I also work because Canada, there's there's very few parishes in Canada where, especially if it's a new mission where you can actually work as a full-time priest. So I also work as a teacher of technology, uh, computer programming and the like uh, at uh, an online school. Um, and I have a farm. So if you hear chickens in the background, <laughs> that's probably why. Wonderful. And so for those that are listening, can you give a definition of what a, a mission parish is versus a quote-unquote regular parish, Father Justin? Right. So so Orthodox, uh, in Orthodox parishes, uh, they usually start off, if it's a brand new parish, start off as a mission. Ours was a, uh, a daughter, kind of church plant is another uh, more Protestant term for it, uh, a daughter uh, daughter church of St. Herman of Alaska Orthodox Church, uh, which is in Langley, British Columbia. Uh, there uh, was, as as Father Lawrence, who's the rector of that uh, parish, um, look, and I looked around, we identified that there's, there's no English language, there was no English language uh, Orthodox Church in Vancouver, which is a fairly sizable city. Uh, so uh, we decided to kind of hive off with about 10 people or so. Um, maybe it was somewhere like 14, uh, if you count all the kids, uh, and uh, and start a mission in Vancouver. The, the challenge with with uh, with starting that a new church, a mission in Vancouver is, oh, well, there's a number of them. One, it's uh, Canada is a fairly secular country. Vancouver is a very secular city. Uh, and uh, nobody can afford to live in Vancouver. So I've actually, uh, the, 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 the mission has now grown into a, 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 a full Orthodox church, uh, although we don't actually have a full-time priest yet, so. <laughs> right, right, and I know that from previous conversations, you guys, um, the unique challenge there, one of them is uh, attrition, like you mentioned, where people will move yep. away because of the affordability. So from when it first started, about you know 10 people or 14, to where it is today, um, has it has it grown somewhat since then? Yep, yep. We we uh, we just recently uh, started renting an official building. Before that, uh, for fourteen years, we were in uh, a little uh, what basically a house <laughs> uh, with a with a large largest uh, relatively largest chapel uh, attached to it. Um, that um, that was. Um, uh, we could kind of just squeeze the 40 or so people who uh, came to make up our mission. We kind of stabilized that for, for quite a number of years. And then we, we, we lost that little house uh, uh, that, well, it was like a big old house. Um, and we had to strike off on our own. We've, we're now renting a church building from the Anglican Diocese of New Westminster. 
um, in, and we're now in, located in North Vancouver instead of East Vancouver. Uh, so, but it's a beautiful uh, old uh, English slash Welsh church building. Um, uh, we're, we're very happy there. Uh, costs a little more than it used to, <laughs> but it's it's. Uh, and so now we've grown. Actually, now that we look more like a church, <laughs> we've actually grown to maybe uh, uh, sixty or seventy on a Sunday. So okay. That's more sustainable. So that's great to hear. Yeah. So tell us yeah. a little bit about uh, your religious background. And I know that you didn't grow up in the Orthodox Church. So uh, walk us through that up to the point that you actually encountered Orthodoxy. Yeah, so I I grew up almost as far as you can get from Orthodox Christianity and, and, and still be, you know, essentially Christian. <laughs> um, uh, at least in terms of a lot of the the basic assumptions of the faith that I grew up with, uh, I grew up Plymouth Brethren, which nobody will have heard of. Uh, my usual uh, sort of back of the envelope description for people is it's kind of like uh, Baptists without the pastor. Uh, the the Plymouth Brethren movement started in the 1850s or so in uh, in Plymouth, England. That's Plymouth. Uh, they don't call themselves Plymouth Brethren; they would just call themselves Christians or Brethren because it was a, an effort. It was an effort to get away from all of the various things that divided Protestant Christianity, which there's been many of those efforts <laughs> over the years. Uh, but this one focused on uh, getting rid of all creeds because creeds, you know, the creeds just divide and they're, they're not actually in the Bible. So, so we'll get rid of all the creeds and we'll just meet on the grounds of the one body around the scriptures. Uh, so we took sola scriptura to its kind of logical extreme. If we didn't have a chapter or verse for it, we didn't do it. Uh, and, and so, uh, and it, it's also within the Anabaptist tradition, that is to say, uh, um, uh, the the idea that would, would be that uh, only people who profess uh, a belief in Jesus Christ are baptized. You don't do infant baptism. So, and in fact, I kind of cut my teeth in uh, debating with with my fellow Christians uh, when I uh, at the Mennonite school when I, where I went to. I'm, I'm half Mennonite, so I, I went to a Mennonite school. Uh, um, I, I was debating uh, on the one hand uh, over pacifism with my teachers, and on the other hand, my best friend was a was the son of a Lutheran minister, and so I debated infant baptism with him, trying to prove infant baptism was wrong. Uh, so, so that that's kind of hopefully gives a sense of the, um, the 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 evangelical Protestant Christian upbringing that I had. Um, it, because it was so far away from orthodoxy, when I first encountered orthodoxy. It was it was a bit of a shock. Um, there, there's also embedded within Protestant Christianity a fairly strong anti-Catholic streak, uh, and in some churches, uh, obviously the split between the Catholics and the Protestants was not a friendly "oh, you go your way, I'll go my way" kind of split. It led to things like the, the Forty Years' War and the Spanish Armada, uh, and and things like that. Uh, so, so there is a certain heritage of that, and that was fairly strong in the in the in the group that I grew up in. And so, when I encountered Orthodoxy, my first instinct was, "Well, this is Catholicism. This is terrible. I need to. I need to. I have a friend here who is, he's obviously believes in Jesus, and I, I need to correct him." So that was kind mm. of my first. Where, first of all, where I was coming from, and my initial <laughs> initial uh, um, contact, if you will, and, and my response to it as a result of where I was coming from. Right, right. And so did you grow up in, was your whole family religious? Like, tell us a little bit about those yes. years being part of the religion, uh, the um, Brethren Church and what that looked like in terms of 
uh, your piety and just right. what worship setting looked like painted well first of all we would have been very allergic to the term religion uh <laughs> christianity is not a religion it's a relationship uh which i mean i think there's some truth in that um it, it was it, but it was a very pious and devout family uh we went to church every sunday uh we took uh well we wouldn't have called it communion every sunday but um uh and we wouldn't have i wouldn't have taken it until i was uh baptized and uh and a member of the church but I, but i went to sunday school i i grew up uh listening to bible stories uh and i still love the bible stories i i because uh the church that i grew up in uh you needed to have a chapter and a verse for everything one of the folk one of the strengths of the plymouth brethren uh christian movement is that most people actually really know their scriptures because you know yeah i have to have my own conviction of that uh, and and so as i grew up in this environment um church was just a regular part of my life uh went every sunday uh when i after i was baptized at the age of 13 um i made a profession of faith at the age of eight uh which is you know sort of standard protestant christian uh, uh lord please come into my heart, save, please save me. It's kind of sinner's prayer kind of thing. And then got baptized at about the age of 13 and, and then uh, began participating in what we would call the, the, the Lord's Supper. And, and the, 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 because there's almost nothing in the New Testament scriptures about how um, the church service is to be conducted, you know, I would now say that's because you know, it wasn't controversial. <laughs> Paul had done it, and they mostly were the, the New Testament epistles are mostly written to correct problems in the church. But but from a, from a, from the perspective that I grew up in, where the scripture is complete, it's sufficient. It has everything that you need for life and godliness. It, it it's uh, and and therefore it has everything that you need to do to do church, except it doesn't have very much about it. So Plymouth Brethren uh, 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 celebrations of the Lord's Supper are very very simple uh and and actually quite beautiful in a, in that kind of simple way uh the the way that um uh we uh remember christ uh in that context would be for uh based on first corinthians chapter 14 where it says when you come together brethren let every thing be done decently and in order uh each of you will have uh, a word of instruction a hymn a prophecy or a prayer uh and and we didn't do much prophecy, but, but all those other things, a word of instruction would be somebody getting up and sharing something that was on their heart about, about uh, uh, that, that had spoken to them from the scriptures uh, or uh, uh, um, uh, a hymn. Let's all sing hymn, num let's turn our hymnals to number. And that would be, and, and, and then, or, or a prayer or just get up and pray. And, and each that would happen for about uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, each person getting up, uh, each male member of the congregation who is who is a, a full participant, baptized, would get up and do one of those three things. And often you'd come with something on your heart, and brother so and so over there would get up and say something that was that just meshed perfectly with that. Or, or brother so and so over there would give you a hymn, give out a hymn, and and you're oh yes, that's exactly what I I, I wanted. It was beautiful, beautiful. And then at the very end. Uh, uh, one of the uh, elders of the church, uh, uh, presbyters, I would now call them, 
would get up and actually break a loaf of bread and it would be handed out. Everybody would take a piece and eat it and, and pour uh, wine into a cup. And then that would be passed around and everyone would, would drink from it. And remembering Christ. Uh, that, that was, that was the, the tradition I grew up in. And, uh, uh, and it was, it was you know, very deeply uh, embedded, in, but not only in my own life, but in my, my family's life. Uh, and and uh, yeah, that would, that would be kind of my, my upbringing. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. And so in that context, I do have a, a question. If there was a disagreement, uh, how would that be settled? Because if it's a very decentralized governance, was that, was that yes. problematic or do they have a mechanism for solving that? An excellent question <laughs> because uh, uh, very early on in this um, uh, kind of trans-denominational movement, as, as they liked to call themselves, uh, that precise thing came up it was like every because every every church in this in this uh in the in the brethren assemblies every, we wouldn't call it churches by the way we would call them assemblies every assembly uh uh it's, it's just like the greek word ecclesia right <laughs> uh um every assembly is is independent of one another uh and and so uh what happens if a brother or a sister in one assembly is like does something really wrong and is kicked out um and then and they then they go down the street to the to the next assembly and they show up and say hi I'd like to take take uh, communion, uh, and and there that quickly became the the source of the very first split in the movement. So on the one hand you had what were called the open brethren, which is the ones that I grew up in, with, where it was basically just up to the individual assembly. Maybe they maybe they accepted them, maybe they didn't. Uh, but basically, anybody who who professed Jesus as their Lord and Savior was welcome to take communion, uh, and then discipline was very, very local. On the other hand, the the one of the major founders of the early brother movement, J. M. Darby, uh, his solution was that even though he saw the unity of Christendom as irretrievably broken, he still felt that you had to act on the grounds of the one body, and uh, and so the. Um, uh, the the solution there was that when there was a controversial decision, every assembly around the world had to rule on it, which which was which side was right or wrong. And so the 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 effect of this principle of unity was actually that uh, every time there was a really controversial decision, the closed brethren, as they would call, would split around the world. And so you had they 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 split and they split and they split or exclusive brethren sorry would be what would they would call called and they they would split around the world uh, uh, so that such that my grandfather who grew up exclusive brethren and my grandmother who grew up uh, uh, conservative brethren which is kind of more open but not quite the same they actually never went to church together <laughs> even though they were both Plymouth brethren and my father not wanting to choose between the two of them chose the third path which was the open brother which was the group that i grew up in uh so um so discipline was very local um it was very decentralized as you say uh, most of the time there was a kind of filtering system so most of the time there, there, there tends to be uh uh within the even these kind of kind of very dynamic groups uh a, a tendency to seek for unity and so most of the time there was a, a each assembly would have its own kind of characteristics but but they'd be mostly agreed on most things every now and then there was a very controversial thing so my, my wife also went to one of these assemblies um likes to tell the story of uh 
Christmas was uh, was was controversial. So so um, uh, some some brethren were like, yeah, we should totally celebrate Christmas. Other brethren, nope, Christmas is a pagan holiday. We shouldn't celebrate it. Um, and so my my wife likes to tell the story of the one brother who got up and said. Lord, I, in prayer in the Lord's Supper, Lord, I thank you that we are not like other men. I, I don't actually use that phrase, but <laughs> we do not celebrate that pagan holiday of Christmas. And, and then, and then, short immediately thereafter, another brother gets up and says and starts praying and says, "Lord, we thank you for the miracle of your birth, which we celebrate at this season of Christmas." <laughs> so, kind of like prayer wars. So, occasionally it would get quite interesting. Uh, most of the time, though, uh, there there's that. That the natural tendency of any community towards homogeneity would would be at work, and and um, uh, and if there was a need, then uh, for for sort of discipline, uh, uh, there would it would generally be exercised by the presbyters, by the elders, who who were were understood to have authority within the local church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's helpful to know. And um, <clears throat> this this theme has kind of come up with other um people that i've interviewed so far where in and this might be getting ahead of ourselves so we can we can shelf it if if you find it necessary but within orthodoxy obviously there's this sense of like sacramentality or that the world is a means to god and that it's not in competition with god and then uh, the brethren church and i i used to at one point attend a mennonite uh church and i'm familiar with that from my undergrad studies and so i can resonate with the sense that it's it's the furthest extreme from that it's very anti-sacramental it's very um yeah it, it's just in the dirt as it were but there's not like this yeah. heavenly perspective those things aren't connecting um can you yes. talk a little bit about that because i think that you'd be a good person to ask that kind of question just this difference in um uh what would you call it Sen- sensibility yeah i mean that's yeah, that yeah, would absolutely. Mean, yeah. yeah yeah uh you're right it's it, it and this is another way so first of all it's not it's very anti-hierarchical <laughs> it's it's not not at all organized uh and and it, it's i would actually say that the the brethren and, and to some extent the, the larger anabaptist tradition is anti-sacramental uh it's such that we actually had a hymn only only bread and only wine but to faith the solemn sign of the heavenly uh and the divine we give thee thanks O lord so so that it, it, even within the hymnography uh it was it was very much emphasized that you no know, all these things that are given to us the, the 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 bread and the wine and the lord's supper uh, it's just a symbol baptism is only a symbol uh of an outward reality so that 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 phrase only a symbol is is kind of it it reduces the symbol to to something that is just merely an outward show uh, there's no intrinsic connection between the uh, the the bread and the wine and what happens when you take the bread and the wine. It's just we're doing it because Jesus told us to. Uh, and there's no, the baptism. There's no I- intrinsic connection to any kind of cleansing. Um, uh, although, I mean, I guess it is there <laughs> in the scriptures. There's certain verses that are really hard when you're when you're brethren. Uh, um, uh, um, washing of water in the spirit yeah saved by <laughs> baptism yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but that that was actually one of the the very first things i cut my teeth on was was uh, opposing the idea of infant baptism opposing the idea that baptism saves you and 
I, I look back a little bit to my chagrin now. Um, uh, I could use a stronger word, but, but uh, uh, when uh, there was a, um, somebody who came into the church who he was just wasn't ready to get baptized, uh, but he'd made a profession of faith. And from the from the evangelical Protestant perspective, what saves you is that profession of faith uh, with the mouth confession is made uh, unto salvation, uh, uh, Romans chapter 10. Uh, and so and so he was clearly saved. He'd made the profession of faith. He wasn't ready to get baptized. And so I actually pushed the oversight of the assembly, the elders in our assembly, uh, uh, to allow him to take communion, even though he hadn't been baptized. It was interesting that that was the tradition, that you had to get baptized before you could take communion. And yet, there's no chapter or verse for that if you don't think that baptism saves you. Uh, and so, so based on that sola scriptura position, I, I, I went further down the road with it and said, no, this guy should, and they, they actually listened. They, they allowed him to take communion without his, his requiring him to get baptized. So, mm -hmm. so, um, and there's lots of things, there's sort of lots of knock-on effects from this, like that, that it, it, it tends to end up dismissing large portions of the world, uh, large portions of art. Uh, the, I mean, there are no icons. It's very iconoclastic. There aren't, weren't even any crosses in the church that I grew up in. The only thing that we had that could be kind of sort of church-like uh, that you could see, well, obviously there's a pulpit up front, um, no cross on the pulpit. Um, there there was was kind of sort of stained glass it was only colored glass there was no pictures in the in the stained glass but yeah that would made it kind of look a little bit churchy and then there's a, a verse on the wall and and in our church the verse was um believe on the lord jesus christ and you shall be saved and they omitted the rest of the verse which is and your house x <laughs> 242 no it's that's not right it's in acts but anyhow <laughs> uh, philippian the story of the philippian jailer um but 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 that was the only decoration. There was no artistry, uh, and and uh, even things like fiction were by a certain subset. I mean, it wasn't a, because there was no um, no uh, sort of um, uh, unified doctrinal statement about art. Um, uh, th there was no, there was no absolute, th there's no absolutes here, but, th but there was a certain subset of the, of the church that looked on even fiction as suspect. In, in fact, my own grandfather, who was an amazing poet, he wrote beautiful poetry. He felt that people should not be reading novels. People should not be reading fiction. They should only be reading the scriptures. Um, he, he made an exception for poetry, interestingly. He felt that poetry, there's something about poetry that exalted it to uh, a level that was higher than, and, and I, I got a, most of my love of poetry from him. Uh, he would read me Charge of the Light Brigade by Alfred Lord Tennyson, Battle of, Ballad of the Revenge, and uh, William Wordsworth. He'd quote, had a poetic quote for everything. But, but there was this, this sense that the world was dangerous. We need to be separate from it. We're called out of the world. Uh, and in fact, the world is destined for to be to be destroyed, and and so therefore uh, we have to be very suspicious of everything in the world. Um, it's all it's all quite dangerous. Uh, and and you know, I even had people tell me that uh, C.S. Lewis who was my hero, even at that point. Um, you know that C.S. Lewis wasn't really a Christian. I mean, he did write a book about a witch. So you know, 
so yeah, okay. it's, and... it's an interesting mix. Uh, and, I, and I think I would trace some of that back to the non-sacramental nature of the church and its, its, its uh, understanding of the church, sorry, <laughs> and, and, the, and the, uh, the, this, this desire to be separate from the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I'm assuming that it would also come with a very literal interpretation of scripture too, in the brethren sense. Yes. There wouldn't be room for uh, allegories of any kind or symbolic yeah. stories. Yeah. So okay. as, as an example of, of that, uh, my, my, uh, one of my favorite people who actually taught me you could be an intelligent person and a Christian, he was a doctor. He was a literal six-day creationist. And the, and the feeling, his feeling was, his, his understanding was, look, Jesus said that God made the world in six days. That means that they have to be six literal 24-hour days. There's absolutely no room for any other uh, interpretation of Genesis. And if you do that, you're undermining your, the entirety of the faith. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that would be interesting to talk about maybe uh, with the switch to orthodoxy. One last question yeah. sort of on this part is, I'm always trying to figure out ways to speak about sacramentality and why it's important. And because I think it's kind of the, the key issue, at least if someone's grown up in Protestantism and they're switching to orthodoxy. Mm. Um, and would you have a way to, um, in, in simple terms, just talk about why well, first of all, what it means to have a sacramental worldview. These are some big questions that I'm going to throw at you, but like yeah, what it yeah, means totally. to have a sacramental worldview and why that's actually important in terms of, like my sense is that you, you kind of have to have that if you want to remain a Christian long-term, especially in our current climate, because God mm, and the world yeah. are, are drifting apart in terms of how we conceptualize things. Um, and it's important to re-enchant the cosmos and have the sense that God is mm, close yeah. and near to us. But yeah. I would like to hear from you. Um, yeah, how would you define sacramentality in a general sense, and why is it important in our Christian walk? Hmm. That's a big question. Uh, <laughs> the the um, uh, I mean, I would say maybe uh, my preparation for it is probably C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien uh, famously discussed the need to rebaptize the Western imagination, uh, and. And Lewis himself, in Surprised by Joy, talks about that process um, when he, he picked up George MacDonald's Fantasties uh, and, and uh, encountered joy, uh, encountered the sense of the numinous, uh, something that's, that's, that's beyond this, this, just the material, the, the material world. Um, and, and it wasn't until many years later when he finally moved from atheism to Christianity, well, to initially to theism and then to Christianity, uh, that, that he, he start, realized that that sense of joy that sense of meaning in, in that he that he got from the beauty of nature that he that he that he received from the world at large uh and that he tried to was trying after he became a christian to communicate through fantasy uh was was um uh but kind of kind of re-enchanting the world as you as you said <laughs> um uh was was something that intrinsic to christianity I, and and so you know that's I, I would say Lewis made it possible for me to become orthodox. Um, uh, he didn't make me orthodox, but uh, but but he certainly made it possible um, on multiple levels. But I, I won't go into all of that right now. But but um, the uh, what the kind of light bulb moment for me was reading Father Alexander Schmemann's For the Life of the World, and I think it's actually in a footnote that he says this. But he says that 
all life lived in obedience to God is sacramental. And then he goes on in, in, that, in that work to talk about the sacraments as transformative, that there is this um, transformation that we are undergoing as human beings, uh, where, where we're moving from merely natural creatures, where we, uh, we are in the reductionist uh, worldview that, that he begins his book with, uh, the, the German philosopher, I can't remember who it was, who said, we are what we eat. And and then uh, he he brilliantly takes that and says, uh, yes, that's true. We are what we eat, which is why we need to eat God, which is why we need to eat Jesus Jesus Christ, the the the, the flesh, his flesh and his blood, because as we as we partake of that and we understand that in the most literal sense possible, and in, 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 uh, when he says, "This is my body broken for you." This is my blood shed for you, uh, shed for the life of the world, for the remission of sins. Uh, that as we as we do that, as we eat His body, we are becoming His body. As we drink His blood, we have His life in us, because the Jews, of course, understood that the life was in the blood, uh, and and that this is transforming us from merely physical beings into beings that are connected with the the, the spiritual world that that lies behind the physical world. That lies above and and from which all of the all of the physical world derives any sense of meaning and and, and value and love and purpose, uh, and so, um, and, and that's precisely what Lewis and Tolkien were doing as they were as it has uh, in their in their project to rebaptize the Western imagination. They're saying there is there, there is magic in the world, uh, uh, or as it's kind of reduced to in. Uh, in, in uh, the, the end of um, the two towers uh, in the movie version, there is good in the world, Mister Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. <laughs> and, uh, it's like okay, well, that's within the spirit of Tolkien, you know. It, it, I don't think that's actually a quote from Tolkien, but it, it get, gets it more or less right. But but what is that? That the the magic that they portray is also something that's it's not a it's not a, another scientific system as you might get in uh, in Harry Potter. Harry Potter is kind of an interesting side case, but I, I like fantasy. So, um, but but it, it it's it's something that um, is very personal, um, and 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 with with the Tolkien, you have the Maya and the Valar behind the scenes, the spirits working behind the scenes. With 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 Lewis, it's 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 Aslan, or or maybe a a, a star <laughs> that has fallen down to earth. Uh, that but it's a very personal thing it's not something that is that you can sort of systematically create and make work uh uh it's not um um uh what is it uh, what's the latin phrase ex operare ex operare <laughs> from the word comes the operation uh um which is actually the western understanding of the sacraments uh it, it's no it's it's mystery it's something that is uh, beautiful behind the scenes, not fully comprehensible to us as human beings, but that we recognize, even as we understand that you know the only thing that gives my life meaning is love. What is love? How do you define love in any kind of physical, materialistic way? It, it, you know, are we going to reduce it to lust? Uh, that that misses a whole bunch of love. <laughs> There's all sorts of, of of other. Are we going to say no? There is no such thing as love. Or are we going to actually affirm? No, there is love. It is real, and it's it's what makes life worth living. So, I don't know. Mm. Uh, that's yeah, uh, yeah. No, that no that's helpful. I, 
<laughs> that's that's helpful. I know it's like a huge question that could be yeah, yeah. talked about for hours on end. So I do want to return to your story because I think that's um, really interesting to um, see where you're coming from, talk about some of these issues. And now, so you're in the Brethren Church, and then uh, what is it specifically that happens that uh, causes you to first encounter orthodoxy? Okay, so uh, I was just... In, I think in my final year of high school, uh, a young lady uh, came to our church. Uh, she uh, became a good friend of mine, uh, and and she is a convert to to Christianity from more or less nothing. Uh, and her brother, a month later, converted to Christianity as well. He went to the little Orthodox church up the street. Um, uh, then, like in the backyard of Doctor Ed Hartley, Saint Herman of Alaska Orthodox Church. Um, and that was okay. He was Christian. That was good. Um, uh, a little while later, uh, her brother uh, expressed an interest in possibly becoming a priest. Well, priests are bad. That's Catholic. Uh, and so my, my, my friend was very worried for her brother. And so she introduced me to him uh, with the expectation that I would, you know, talk some sense into him, you know, to make, make him a, a real Christian. Uh, and, and thus began sort of this back and forth, on again, off again, uh, um, eight-year-long uh, quest to prove Orthodox Christianity wrong. Because, uh, as I say, uh, initially, my, my first impression is, well, it's obviously Catholic. You have this sacramental view of life. It's hierarchical. There's a liturgy. There's all, the, all these external things that uh, bishops and stuff like that, uh, uh, the candles, uh, icons, things that look very Catholic. Uh, it, it's obviously the same thing. And we know Catholicism is bad. Uh, so have to talk them out of it. Of course, when I do talk to people, as I say, I cut my teeth debating with uh, my best friend who was the son of a Lutheran minister. We, we never came to a, an agreement on it, but but I, I was actually I actually really enjoy talking to people I just whom I disagree with because I, I want to know the truth. Uh, and so I actually got to know my friend's brother. He became my uh, my friend and he's now my godfather. Um, uh, and and uh, and we had this ongoing debate where it kind of kept coming back on some level to one of the very first things that he, he talked about, which was, okay, you, you believe in the scriptures. You believe the scriptures are the inspired word of God. They are your only authoritative source for life and doctrine. Why those 27 books of the New Testament? But why not the other? Why not like the Gospel of Thomas or something like that? Um, um, uh, and, and I didn't really have a good answer for him. You know, I, I gave the usual Protestant uh, um uh, um, answer, which is like, well, it was self-evident. Uh, you know, it was just obvious that, that the, but it, but if you, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. If you start to look at the history, the problem is it, it wasn't self-evident. And, uh, um, but, but the, 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 the answer, that was the answer I gave. It was just, it was self-evident, obviously. Um, uh, and and you could you could work that further and say, well, you know, it was stuff that was in harmony with the Old Testament scriptures, which were obviously acknowledged as scripture by Christ and the apostles. Uh, okay, um, things like that. But I, I never came up with a really good, like in all those eight years, I never came up with an answer that really satisfied me. Um, and then, like the point that he made was that, well. You know the canon of scripture, as you as at least New Testament scripture at any rate, as you as you accept it, wasn't resolved. It was resolved by the church. It wasn't resolved though until like you don't have that 
being authoritatively pronounced on for, um, well, the earliest you have that list is 318. I think it's a Paschal letter of St. Athanasius. Um, but that's not a particularly authoritative. I mean, St. Athanasius is great, but but uh, literally, Athanasius is great, right? But, but, um, but that's not necessarily authoritative in and of itself, right? Uh, in terms of any kind of authoritative pronouncement on it, it's only a local council in Rome in 382, where you would finally have that those 27 books listed as these are the books that can be read in church. This is the that's the, the canon, the rule about what can be read in church. And so the the um the the, po the basic point that he made is well, first of all, you accept that canon. That's kind of core to your whole system of belief. But if you accept the church's pronouncement on something so essential to what you believe, so foundational to what you believe, why why don't you accept the church church's rulings on anything else? He's going, well, that's a that's a good point. And the other point that he made, again, which I didn't really have a good answer for, uh, it's not one that ultimately satisfied me, was the um what what happens like what source of authority came in between there <laughs> like if that if the if the scriptures are your sole authority for life and doctrine and that canon of the new testament scripture isn't resolved until 382 at a local council in rome what was the church relying on for authority before that i mean the apostles were all dead so um and that was kind of in the in the group that i grew up in the tendency was to think well you know after the apostles died, the church pretty much went to hell in a handbasket. It, it all was corrupt. Uh, and you know, these corrupt bishops and this, the introduction of this pagan liturgy stuff and all, all uh, and and so um so what what sustained the church uh, in the meantime? And and the the part of the answer that I would have given was was also an ecclesiological response, which is to say, well, God preserved a church that was invisible. Uh, the the brethren were actually kind of the, fa the the first ones to really start to formulate the notion, which then became fairly standard in evangelical Protestantism of the of the uh, of the invisible church. That is to say, all who believe in Jesus Christ are saved and therefore are the church. And that, by extension, means that um, you can't actually tell because you can never tell for certain you know, before death you know whether somebody's saved or not uh so so you can't you, the church then for, therefore is essentially invisible you cannot identify it um only god can identify it uh and and that the, and so the the idea was then that you know well all the, there was this kind of the, there's a book by e.h broadman broadman called the pilgrim church which tries to try to trace this kind of invisible church and make it somewhat visible <laughs> down through the centuries he actually ends up identifying with all sorts of heretics and and schismatic groups simply because they like the scripture even though they they often believe completely different things it's an interesting attempt i think a, a failed attempt personally but but it was one of the books given to me when i was like kind of started to say hey i'm really struggling with this what 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 do i how do i respond to this because uh, I, I didn't share this terribly openly with the people that i was uh, but i did bring this you know the questions to my, my the people that i talked to and i started to read and tried to figure it out um uh and and so about seven years or so into this 
I kind of had a moment where I, I felt like it was resolved. It was resolved in favor of me never having to become Orthodox. Yes, I had this great teacher. He, he is a really brilliant, amazing Bible teacher, Dr. David Gooding. I had a chance to sit down and chat with him personally. He had a ministry to Russia. He characterized certain aspects of Russian Orthodox worship in a way that seemed to me to be incompatible with Christianity, because of course he thought it was, uh, and, and, and it kind of settled it for me. And I came away from that missions conference confident that I would never become Orthodox and I would never be a missionary. Well, about three months later, uh, I ended up becoming, through a variety of circumstances, I, I which very much divinely <laughs> uh, arranged, uh, but I won't go into the details here, but, but I ended up as a missionary English teacher in Japan for a year. Uh, and when I came back from that experience, which was a pivotal moment, uh, on many levels, um, uh, I had a completely new understanding of tradition because everything that I appreciated about Japanese culture was traditional. Uh, and in the in the tradition that I grew up in, <laughs> uh, uh, tradition was a bad word. Um, but now, I, all of a sudden, I had a positive understanding of tradition. And I had, of course, learned to bow in Japan, which is really important <laughs> in Orthodox worship. Uh, um, and when I came back from Japan, my friend who had told me to convert her brother and tell her, tell, you know, show him the truth, tell, help, convince him not to be Orthodox, had herself converted to Orthodoxy. In my dialogue with her, she told me that she had never heard me reason so poorly. It's like, what? It's logical as Spock. Come on. <laughs> uh, um, and, and, and now it was a, a, even more personal because she was a close friend, uh, closer than her brother was to me. And, and uh, I needed to resolve this once and for all. Uh, and so um, the, 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 one of the things that it kept coming back to in my discussion with my, with, with my Orthodox friend um, was what was the nature of the early church? What was it like? I had a fairly clear understanding of what it was as a, as a Plymouth brethren, you know, it's like, it was very simple. It was basically what you saw in first Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, and we have it. Uh, whereas he had a fairly clear understanding as well, but it was completely different. It was liturgical. It was sacramental, sacramental. It was hierarchical. Didn't wasn't necessarily decorated with a whole bunch of icons, but it was, it, 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 it looked like a proto version of the Orthodox church. Uh, and so I, I have my bachelor of arts in history. Uh, so uh, because this was a historical question, and even though this wasn't something that was, could be authoritatively understood in scriptural terms, because, you know, it's outside the purview of scripture, um, um, I, I did know, well, you need to have historical context even to understand scripture. And I know how to do history. You, you, if you want to establish what things were actually like, you go to the primary source texts. The, 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 the texts that were written by the people at the time. And so now that I really had to resolve it, I started to dive into the, uh, the uh, so-called post-apostolic fathers, the, the fathers of the church whose writings have been preserved by the church uh, who uh, come immediately after the apostles. So Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch. Uh, Polycarp and Ignatius were both known by and and possibly even ordained by the Apostle John. Um, 
uh, Clement of Alexandria, successor after I, I think one intermediary after, of uh, probably Bishop of Rome after the Apostle Peter. Um, these are very, very, this is second generation Christians, basically. Uh, and, and reading their writings, I was initially trying to squeeze it all into my mindset. I was looking for the sinner's prayer. I was looking for things that would confirm that, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, hierarchy is bad. Um, by the time I got to St. Justin Martyr and Philosopher, who's now my patron saint, um, it was distressingly clear that the early church was not at all like what I had grown up with. Uh, it was very clearly uh, liturgical. We have first written liturgy around the same time of St. Justin Martyr, so about 8150. So, and it was not, not controversial at the time, so it obviously predates that by a significant time. It was, it was clearly hierarchical. Just look at the letters of uh, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, where he says, I received you in the person of your bishop. He understands the bishop is representing the entire community. And he clearly says nothing should be done apart from the bishop. And he has this clear hierarchy of bishop, presbyter, deacon. Um, uh, and, and so it's clearly hierarchical. Uh, th I, there was no sign of the sinner's prayer. But if the, the thing that seemed to make people a member of this church was baptism. And it was understood as for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, so it was, it was clearly sacramental. Uh, they kept talking about this bloodless sacrifice, which turns out to be the bread and the wine. They understood that as sacramental as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and a continuation, the fulfillment of the Jewish sacrificial system. Uh, so, so it looked an awful lot like an early version of the Orthodox church and nothing like what I'd grown up with. So either the entire church went wrong in exactly the same way at exactly the same time. Or the tradition that I grew up with was wrong. That was like the worst. Like Lewis talks in his, his spiritual autobiography about uh, uh, Surprised by Joy about being the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of, of England. <laughs> uh, that was definitely my feeling at this point. It's like, Oh, drat. Oh, no. It looks like I might have to become Orthodox. And I spent a lot of time looking for any reason not to become Orthodox. You know, there may, maybe there must be some reason why maybe I don't have to become Orthodox. It, it just became more and more clear that I need to become Orthodox. And, and uh, it, was, it was terribly disruptive because every single relationship that I cared about in my life that was really deep and meaningful to me, or almost every single one, was deeply disrupted by this because they didn't understand. I'd spent 10 years, ultimately. I spent about eight years trying to prove it wrong, another two years looking for any reason not to be orthodox. So I did spend about a total of about 10 years on this. I couldn't expect people coming from the same group that I did to understand, to come to an understand the same understanding that I had and that it had taken me 10 years to come to in like overnight or you know, possibly even in my, in my lifetime. So, so every, and, and they thought I was going crazy. They thought I wanted to be with my intellectual friends. They thought I would, they, they gave any, it's a, it's, it's a natural tendency to kind of give, you know, we want to give the person the benefit of the doubt. There must be something that, that's making him go crazy like this. Um, Cause that's what it looked like to them, you know? And, and, you know, he's really a nice guy. So there must be something, something else. Uh, and, and anything about it being actually being true. Um, so. It, 
yeah, that that that's kind of I guess the 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 on the eve of my conversion to orthodoxy, I thought I was even losing uh, the woman that I had grown to had fallen in love with, who had had kind of accompanied me on uh, the last year or so of my journey. Um, as far as I knew, she was never becoming Orthodox, and we had agreed that if you know we couldn't agree on the going whether or not we were going to the same church, it wasn't a good idea to get married. So as far as I knew, I was losing her as well. So I spent most of the night before becoming a catechumen, uh, crying out to God in prayer, weeping, and 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 then getting up and finally going to church, and 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 yet that. And actually getting there late because it was daylight savings time and I didn't set my alarm <laughs> properly. <laughs> Father Lawrence had been waiting for so long to get me in <laughs> that he 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 made a special exception at the end of the liturgy to, to get me in. And it was it was there was some that moment was amazing because as I was reciting reciting the creed, the Nicene Creed, that it was like I was suddenly united with every single person who had recited the same creed before me as they were coming into the church, down through the centuries, all the way back to, well, not, I guess it's the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, so not quite AD 325, but, but even beyond that, so like the Apostles' Creed upon which it was based, uh, and, and that, that, that what, ultimately it wasn't a fair fight. It was me and the Bible versus 2,000 years worth of rich reflection on the scriptures, on the tradition, on the way of life that Jesus taught. I, I, I had no chance. <laughs> it, it, but at the same time, I was finally connected in a way, even though as I was losing all these other connections that were so deeply meaningful to me, I was finally connected in the most deep and meaningful way possible to not only um, the rest of the church, not only God as he revealed himself in Jesus Christ to the apostles and in this way of life to all of us and in the, in the saints to all of us, but ultimately even to the people who didn't understand me. Because what they, what they were looking for was, is this. <laughs> what, 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 the, what the ultimate fulfillment of the faith, this is it. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah. So, so on the one hand, it was like the, the most, the most terrible night of my life and the most amazing dawn. Mm, mm. I was late. It took me a long time to get there. <laughs> and I was literally late for, for the service, but, but, but God brought me in. Mm, mm. That's a wonderful story. And when you, um, joined orthodoxy, so it sounds like one of the main issues was just the continuity uh, throughout history that the Orthodox Church has, uh, that you saw yeah. that it had been that way and grown that way. And actually what you were a part of was something that was quite different. Were there any um, other major issues or would you say that that was the, the main uh, crux? And the main thing that forced that, me to become Orthodox? Main, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, precisely. Um, yeah, for me, the historical part was kind of the, the key. Uh, but... I mean, the other thing I would say is, I mean, as I said, Japan was a, was was huge for me. Um, in Japan, I had um, really been forced to confront my own faith as I was now a missionary English teacher there. Uh, 
Um, so on the one hand, yes, Japan was was pivotal in terms of giving me a positive outlook on tradition, in terms of 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 learning to bow, as I put it. Uh, um, but on the other hand, uh, like um, my brother left the faith uh, when when uh, he went to college. He's very thoughtful, very intelligent, very loving guy. Uh, I, I respect him very, very highly, which was a huge challenge for me as a thought, I hope thoughtful uh, person who, who likes, you know, academics and likes books and stuff like that. Um, and, and likes to think of myself as intelligent, right? <laughs> uh, um, uh, and, and I highly respect my brother is like this very intelligent, thoughtful person, and he rejected the faith. And so it was a bit of a crisis for me uh, that was also resolved in Japan. Because here I was, you know, doing my best to win people to Christ um, and trying to figure out, well, what what is this thing that I'm winning them to? Is, is it even real? Is it even true? Uh, and so in Japan, I kind of, God kind of forced me to get back down to the most basic elements of my faith. Because you have to, if you're trying to explain the faith to somebody whose English is not very good, and my Japanese is almost non-existent, I, I'm, it's a little better after Japan because I was actually hoping to go back as a missionary English teacher, uh, as, a, as an actual missionary to Japan, which never transpired. But I did study Japanese, so I, I did eventually get to learn Japanese. But you have to boil, you have to um, reduce the faith to the most basic terms possible, uh, and and that was important and helpful for me as well because I was I was actually really struggling with do I even believe? Do do I even believe in that God exists or that He is? Uh, or that he's good, um, and and a pivotal moment for me actually was uh, the Great Kobe earthquake in Japan, which I was I was stationed uh, halfway between Kobe and Osaka, so I was actually in that earthquake. It woke me up, you know, I was like six, something like six a.m. in the morning, so I was in bed, and and I had been struggling with, do I even believe? Uh, because because um, one, you know, there's the the whole intelligent thinking world around us. Uh, many of them, including my brother, don't believe. Um, the I, I'm not the sort of person who has a lot of like supernatural things happen to me. <laughs> so so I don't have a lot of things that I could point to. Say yes, yes, that happened. And therefore, God exists. Uh, you know, the, God didn't part the Red Sea or even my tomato soup in front of me. Uh, um, he's uh, uh, um, but. And so, so my faith rests on other people's testimony to these things. Um, and and the, the tradition that I grew up in, belief was actually really important. Uh, and um, there, because there, well, you have to explain if, if you believe, as most people in my, my tradition did, that, that once saved, always saved. Well, what happens with the people who fall away? Like my brother, he made a profession of faith and then he fell away. So, and the usual explanation is, well, he, he, he meant it. He didn't really mean it. He said the sinner's prayer, but he didn't really mean it. He thought he meant it, but he didn't actually mean it. So this, this doctrine of eternal security actually ended up making me eternally insecure because then I was wondering, well, I think I meant it. I, I'm pretty, but maybe I didn't really, maybe I'm actually damned. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I don't believe at all. And then you add this sort of intellectual uh, um, uncertainty there on top of that. Uh, and, and then you're left with like, well, what, what am I? Am I really a Christian? Do I even believe? So, so 6 a.m. or thereabouts, 
in uh, Shukugawa, halfway between Kobe and Osaka. I'm woken up by one of the most powerful earthquakes to shake that area of Japan in history. Um, it devastated the city of Kobe. Where I was, everything was, I woke up and my bed was literally break dancing around the room. And I had no time to think. All I, all I could do was hold on to my bed and the very first words out of my mouth as my bed is breaking down, break dancing around the room, I'm holding on to it for dear life. My very first words were, Lord Jesus, please save me, keep this house up. Well, I knew I believed. Like I, it was, <laughs> I, I actually believed. <laughs> and, and so, um, and, and then, but then the question was, well, what do I believe? And, and I had been working through that. And one of the things, one of the other things that was there in Japan was like, I started to realize sal salvation, which we, as uh, I had always grown up thinking of as this instant, this moment in time when I say, Lord Jesus, please come into my heart, forgive my sins uh, and save me. Uh, that's the moment at which you're saved. And there's all sorts of things that happen in, in that soteriology, that understanding of salvation, uh, that, that, that at that moment, uh, and, and you kind of cross over from life to death in that moment. Um, something kind of similar to what we might believe about baptism, but not the same. Because the 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 um, the what I started to see was salvation is a process. God is at work in our lives long before that moment, whatever it may be. That even if however pivotal pivotal it may be, uh, uh, at which we say the sinner's prayer, or at which we get baptism, God is at work long before that moment and then continues to work in our life after that moment salvation is not finished it's a, it continues to be an ongoing work i still have to participate in that i still have to continue to say yes so on the one hand i i was able to boil it boil faith down to very simply god is and he is good he is as it says in hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 god he that comes to God must believe that he exists and is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That is, he is, and he is good. Um, and and I, I now knew that experientially. Um, and, and, and that's faith, the understanding that God is good, uh, which, is, which is actually much broader than, than often, than what I grew up with. And, you know, um, uh, and, and I started to see uh, faith in Jesus as coming to the understanding of God's provision for us, which predates even the incarnation. Like, what is faith in, in Hebrews 11, when you have this great hall of heroes of faith? Abraham didn't know Jesus, and yet he was saved by faith. Uh, he was saved by faith in God's provision for him, even though he didn't know what it would be, uh, not in its fullness. Uh, and I, I still don't know. Christ in his fullness. Um, I'm still learning. Uh, it's still a process. Uh, and so we, we, we understand that God is and that he is good and that he is working in all things for our good uh, as we love him and are the called according to his purpose, as he's calling us to be his own. Uh, and, and, and he's, he's so, so that, that understanding of salvation is a process that it came to in Japan, that understanding of the sort of foundation of the faith as what is faith in itself. All of that fit with what I saw in the Orthodox Christian faith. Uh, it didn't fit as neatly or as perfectly in what with in the in the tradition that I'd grown up with. 
Uh, and so, so that was the other thing that as I, I mean, my, my wife, when I gave her, uh, uh, before she was my wife, <laughs> uh, the Orthodox way by Bishop Callisto Square, she had thought for many years about, about the Trinity. And as she started to read the Orthodox way, she didn't tell me this until later because <laughs> she didn't want to get my hopes up. <laughs> but she, she was reading the Orthodox way at the time I was becoming a catechism. <laughs> She's like, I thought I was the only one who, who, who thought this way. I thought I was the only one. And, and that's, that's so often the experience as you start to engage with Orthodoxy. If you're a thinking, thoughtful Christian person who's, who's engaging with whatever tradition you've grown up with, and, and you're like, well, some, some of this doesn't make sense. And you come to Orthodoxy and all of a sudden it all makes sense. It all fits together. It fits not only my experience of life, not only with history, but with, with like the, the, the reality that, that I see attested to in, in the saints, in, in the scriptures, in the writings of the church fathers, in, in just any great piece of literature, which you just you see riddled throughout the Orthodox way is quoting Dostoevsky and all sorts of other people, uh, Christians and non-Christians. The, the truth is, uh, is, is, is foundational to the reality that we experience. And so as you, as you are committed to finding the truth in its fullness, sorry, you're doomed to eventually become Orthodox. <laughs> I like I like that. That would be a good quote. Um, so, usually I do ask about uh, challenges. Um, I want to respect our time, and there's one other yes, section that I want to get to. So, in terms of the challenges, I think that um, it sounds like you came in quite reluctantly at first. Are there? But I don't want to just like <laughs> yes. totally skip that part. So, are there other things that you would mention, uh, maybe in a, a summarized form, in terms of challenges when you? actually became orthodox and started to to practice that way of of being a christian well the biggest challenge is always going to be coming to terms with like reconciling this idealized version of the church with the reality that's that particularly for any convert who you know comes with with a, a sense of wow the church is amazing and then you you, you encounter the, the the lived reality of the church and it's like well it's not so amazing yeah. What what I like to say is, in terms of how coming to terms with that is um, uh, is in the Orthodox Church, we've resolved most of the big outstanding theological questions centuries ago. That gives us the time, the space that we need to get on with the really hard work, which is learning to love one another. And 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 every generation is going through that same process of learning to love one another, and we are we doing it imperfectly. So as a result, you, you as as you come to understand the church as you know the body of Christ, uh, in, the visible body of Christ, <laughs> not the invisible one, very identifiable. It is the pillar and the bulwark of the truth, and that therefore it has to be identifiable. But the downside of that is you've got all these people who identify with the church who are messed up, including me. So, so, um, yeah, you have to come, you have to come to terms with that. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is as, as a convert who really loves debating, I had to learn to stop debating, <laughs> not, not stop debating, but, but to, to realize, look, God is working with people wherever they're at. And, uh, if I'm really going to learn to speak the truth in love, then I need to respect where they're at. And so that's often that oftentimes that means me just shutting up. And and just you know, letting God continue to work with them, you know, where they're at. They're, they're not where I'm at. Of course, they're not. They're on a completely different journey. We're all on a journey. 
So as again, Bishop Callisto is where it begins the Orthodox way with, right? We are all on a journey. So well, those are a couple seg- other things. And that, that's actually a perfect segue because uh, we do have people listening, watching that are interested in Orthodoxy that may not be attending a church, that may not be familiar with Orthodoxy. So for someone that's uh, in that stage of their journey, what would be uh, your advice to them? Uh, well, find as good church as you can in your area and then be as good a member of that church as you can or become as good a member of your church, of that church as you can. And then there's lots of there's lots of good resources out there. Sadly, the Internet is filled with uh, lots of great stuff and uh, lots of people with lots of time on their hands who probably are you know shouldn't be representing themselves as experts in orthodox christianity so i would say treat the internet as a resource with caution um it's not that there's not good stuff out there there is uh but but also find good books and but also but more than that actually remember especially if you're coming at it like i do uh like i did i wanted to be right uh it's not about being right it's about becoming righteous uh, and that's that's the hard work. That's that's the that's the real challenge. Uh, uh, one that I'm still not living up to. <laughs> so so um, be prepared to learn how to love your brothers, your sisters, who are just as broken as you are, uh, sometimes more so, uh, and who are also on a journey. Uh, but your job as a follower of jesus christ is to learn to love them the uh the apostle john says in his first epistle uh, no one can claim to love god whom he has not seen if he does not love his brother whom he has seen if you don't love your brother your sister in christ uh you you uh well first of all you're not following the teaching of, of jesus christ who says love your enemies <laughs> never mind your brothers and sisters in christ uh, uh, love your enemies do good to those who hate you pray for those who despitefully use you uh, um uh the the but but you have to in order to learn to love god the the, the forum within which you do that the arena with it within which you do that is your local orthodox church uh and in all its brokenness in all its messed upness in, you know, it might be uh, like the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that my, my wife and I were went to as we were touring to find it's like uh, uh, find a church to get married in. It's like this had this terrible, horrible sounding choir of old people and little tacky multicolored Christmas lights decorating the iconostaffs. Uh, but God is there, you know. Uh, he he he's he's probably more. Uh, impressed with the offering of these dedicated old people however broken it may be uh then 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 he is with with your rightness um, so um look for christ in those situations mm, mm. and just to give a bit more of a, a definition you said good three times there that i think would be helpful to just flesh out briefly one was a good parish so what would that yeah. kind of look like if there's some marks of that? Um, a good practitioner, you know, you want to go in good faith. What would that kind of look like? Again, just a few, um, like a postcard sketch of that. And then um, good books. So what would be like mm. maybe three books? So, but let's start with um, like a good parish. Would there be certain things people could look out for? Well, first of all, 
you know, whatever parish is in your area, you know, God has put you in that place for a reason. So, so if we understand that God is at work in all things, including where you are right now, then uh, the, the location where you are may not have a good parish, not the kind you want, but it, it needs to be, it, now it doesn't have to be the closest church to you, uh, but you, you want, you, if there's multiple churches then go find the one that fits best. Um, what are you looking for in a fit? Well, ideally one that, uh, that has uh, the liturgy in the language that you speak. <laughs> Uh, that is a basic Orthodox tradition, actually, uh, or as much as possible in the language that you speak. Um, uh, ideally, one that has a, a community that is that is healthy, and by that I would I would just not necessarily mean that it's free of conflict, but rather one where the people are um, trying to work out that conflict in a way that is in keeping with the gospel. Um, and and if you if you look past the you know often there oftentimes orthodoxy in north america is often a very ethnic experience but if you look past that you often find that there's a there's a core there of people who are there because they love jesus connect with those people uh and and you know the pre the priest may not have the greatest sermons uh that that's okay that's still god speaking to you your job is to take whatever god is saying to you through that person uh, it's that's the prophetic word. So so it, it's it, it, the, the choir may not be in tune. It may be you know a rundown old old building. None of the none of, ultimately uh, the the uh, good parish is one where you can learn to love God by learning to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Hmm. That's really helpful, and um, it kind of answers actually that second part about what does it mean to practice in, in good faith or go in good faith. So let's just turn to that last one. Uh, now, would you have uh, two or three books that you could recommend for someone that's interested in orthodoxy? Uh, my favorite is The Orthodox Way by uh, Bishop Callista Swear. Um, I'm, I'm actually taken to recommending mere Christianity, although it's <laughs> kind of depending on where you're at in, in your faith journey. I, th I think that's an amazing book. Um, yeah, with the, you know, the, the one section on the Trinity being, you might want to take that with a bit of a grain of salt. Uh, uh, he's, he's heavily influenced as the West is by Augustine, but it's not totally wrong either. Um, um, but um, um, as you get, as, as you start moving on, one of the things that was most, like within the Orthodox faith, one of the, 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 the books that was most pivotal for me was uh, the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Uh, I, I did a study of the sayings of the Desert Fathers and it was like life-changing. It was 10 years in. And, and, and I, I, uh, the way that I approached it, and, the, and I recommend this highly, is uh, in the study is we read each saying and they're all like little discrete sayings. And if it didn't speak to me, if I didn't understand it, I skipped it and moved on to the next one. Now, don't don't. I mean, try and work it out. But if you can't work it out, it's like these are these are disconnected sayings that were preserved by the monastic communities that these these men and women lived in uh, uh, and handed down through the centuries. It may not mean anything to you, so move on to the next one. But what I learned from them, besides just the, the amazing diversity of the saints, like they're so they're so different from one another, uh, is that you can learn to uh, 
love God with like as little as possible. Some of them had like maybe one or two verses that they just focused on and and tried to live out in the most radical way possible. Um, and 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 the 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 biggest thing I learned from it is it's really again as I said about me working out my salvation in fear and trembling. Uh, I, I that's that's what it's all about. It's not about being right. It's about becoming righteous. Uh, not about becoming righteous in the sense of you know. Uh, I have attained. Be wary, wary of that. Uh, but rather, in the sense of, and, and the, the sayings of the Desert Fathers are full of that. But rather, in the sense of, I think it's from the sayings of the Desert Fathers. But there's a story of an old monastic. I can never remember his name. Everybody knows he's like the most holy person imaginable. They're all waiting to see, hear what his last words are, and his last words in this life are, "I have not yet begun to repent." What did Jesus say when he came? He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The big revelation of the gospel is that as we repent, God forgives us. That is the way of salvation. So repent. Change your mind. Metanoia, the little Greek of, of, of repent is to change one's mind. Metanoia. Um, and, and, and that's our job. Uh, and, and so uh, it's, yeah, that would be, I don't know. That my short three. <laughs> uh, first one before before becoming Orthodox. Uh, if you're if you're not even not sure if God exists or anything like that, mere Christianity is a good one. As you become Orthodox, the Orthodox way uh, by Bishop Callistus, where and um, ten years in or so, maybe maybe less. <laughs> For me, it was ten years. Uh, you know, make sure you read the sayings of the Desert Fathers. Get yourself you know, sorted out. That's a great uh, list. And for those that may not know, Mere Christianity is by C.S. Lewis, who we were talking about oh, thank you. earlier. Yes, yes. But um, I want to thank you for your uh, time, Father Justin. It's been wonderful chatting with you, and I wish you the very best. Thank you. It's a pleasure as always, Max. God bless. Hey, guys. Thanks for checking out that episode of the Orthodox Christian Podcast. If you have a question about Orthodox Christianity, there is a form in the description or a link to a form in the description. Also, if you have not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so, uh, particularly on YouTube. That's sort of the main home of the podcast, although it is broadcast over a number of different platforms. We are looking to increase the reach of the podcast. So by actually subscribing or liking an episode that tells Google that it's content worth watching and they'll push it to more people. So that's always super helpful. And in the meantime, I hope that you have a peaceful week. Take care.